Dear listeners, this is a special edition of Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and like you, I've been spending the past few weeks at home, barely leaving my neighborhood. In this unique moment in our history, it seems that literally everyone around the world has been doing the same. Personally, one of the most difficult parts of this experience is just not getting to see people. But it's also afforded an opportunity to reconnect with folks that I haven't talked to in quite a long time. I know for myself, I tend to get pretty caught up in our life here in Washington, D.C. And so my typical social circle tends to revolve around the folks that I see on a regular basis. But at this time, I'm not seeing much of anybody. So it's actually been a good opportunity to reach out and catch up with people that I haven't talked to in a long time. So I decided these past couple of weeks to call some friends from different countries around the world and hear about how things are looking outside their window and ways in which they've been keeping their spirits up during the pandemic. We start, dear listeners, with an old friend of mine, Marcelo, who lives in Caracas, Venezuela. Prior to this conversation, I actually hadn't talked to Marcelo in many, many years. And in that time, my friend had experienced a significant religious conversion of sorts. So this was a great opportunity not only to reconnect with him and hear about his spiritual journey, but also to hear about the situation in a country we in the U.S. rarely have a view of at street level. Jack! Hey, brother, how you doing? So good to see you. Same, nice to see you. Oh my goodness. How are you doing? I feel great. I feel great. I can't believe how yes, long it's, it's been. been. <laughs> yeah, 15 years more or less, right? <laughs> it seems like yesterday. You still look so young. Ay, ay, ay. You too, my brother. <laughs> so how, so how are the family all right? Yeah, they're doing okay. They're upstairs doing a, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a homeschooling period right now. Um <laughs> So, so my wife's been taking the lead with with our daughter doing doing that, and it's been, um, you know, it's not it's it's not uh, the easiest, but yeah. I think that they're doing okay. You know, what about with your kids? What what's what's their um, what sort of uh, educational approach are you guys taking with them? I don't even know if they're in school normally. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have seven. <laughs> yeah, you've been uh, busy. Seven kids. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> From three mothers. Uh-huh. That's a lot to keep track of, buddy. Yes. So, busy all the time. <laughs> so, what has it been like for for the for the kids? Um, are, are they normally in school? Yeah, well, the the older ones, yes, um, and right now they're doing homeschool here, uh, and then the little ones are gonna start school soon, but also working from home with them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's I feel I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm at a bit of a, a a disadvantage in terms of even just starting the conversation because I don't I I. I don't know what to assume is normal. Um, okay. Just, just you know, just be because it's Venezuela and everything that's happening in Venezuela. So you know, please excuse my um, 
my ignorance or if I if I make an assumption about something that obviously isn't the case, you know, please just uh, be Dame un poco de gracia Thanks for, for, you know, caring to know about how things are here and, and you know, just having that openness and reaching out to, to get an info of what's going on So, um Man, I don't I don't even know where to start with things. I mean, I, I feel like in these type of situations, it, the best is just to start from from the most immediate place. So, you know, I mean, I want to just hear about like, how how are you feeling today? What how are things going for you? Well, I would say, uh, um, of course, it's like a like a new scenario that we're facing. Uh, but I think that the fact that we've been under constant aggression uh, has led to uh, people organizing ways that, in a way, give us a little advantage in terms of how to deal with this situation right now. Yeah. For example, the clap, that the claps are their councils of local uh, food distribution, basically. Yes. Uh, so. For example, my wife Meche, he's part of the she's part of the club in La Vega, and she's responsible for organizing the food distribution uh, in like a little neighborhood, like like around I don't know sixty families more or less, and then the kind of bigger community uh, that is probably around three hundred families. Yeah, I'm to mention like a really local example, right? But this is happening in. Uh, almost every uh, popular neighborhood or barrio, as we call them here, uh, the claps are, are organized in this way. So uh, we have all that information in terms of we know how many families there are in this sector, so we need X amount of food. And that had been working for the past three, three or four years. Um, and now it's an advantage in terms of how to... to distribute food in this context, no? when you have people having to stay at home and all that. Right. So in a way, that's why I say that, you know, the fact that we've been kind of needing to organize all this time has uh, given us this, these tools to, to, you know, to face this situation now. But as I said earlier, like, these past years, uh, the economic aggression has become much more intense, like, the whole uh, Venezuela's main income uh, is support through oil revenues, and the sanctions have, you know, really attacked that and has, uh, you know, limited very much the income uh, that the country has. So of course that affects everything, you know. Um, so for, for me, it's just like really hypocritical and really just criminal and cruel that the sanctions are kept even within this uh, pandemic situation we're facing. Right. On one hand, the whole migration crisis and all that has been fueled by the right-wing media, basically, in terms of, you know, it's like you create the problem with all the economic sanctions and sabotage, and then, you know, of course, some people are going to try to go elsewhere to you know, to be able to send money to, to families and all that. Right. Uh, but then the media takes that and, like, brings up this picture that it's because the 
Bolivarian government that people are, are fleeing or that there's, um, I don't know, what they call a supposed dictatorship, which is absurd. Uh, and, you know, like, um, it, it, I think it's all part of that plan of trying to bring down the, the Bolivarian revolution. I say this, I, I speak, one, as a as an individual, I'm not speaking for any organization, or any sure, collective, sure. or... Sure or any government, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I speak as an individual, as a Rastafari artist, uh, and, you know, just try to take a non-partial view of things, you know, I'm not, like, defending the government, I have many criticisms towards the government, uh, I think that in many ways the revolution is still, you know, uh, needing to, to go much further, yeah, could you explain, just break down what your understanding is of, of the spirit behind it, its intention really at the at the beginning, what, what it was about? Well, uh, one thing I would say is that the Bolivarian Revolution is very much a lie, and uh, I, would, I would separate uh, uh, the Bolivarian God and then the popular movements and you know in many ways it's interrelated uh, but even if the government ends the Bolivarian movement will continue you know that's right. what, what, what I try to explain and the Bolivarian revolution began before Chavez came to government and it's actually uh, you know the process that led to him being elected president and all this process that we have started since um, I think that the, the ideals of the Bolivarian Revolution in terms of uh, us as a nation uh, breaking away from this colonial rule that we've had directly or indirectly for, you know, the, the past uh, decades or even hundreds of years since the, in the early 20th century when oil production started here. At first, it was the British who sort of were kind of like the power controlling Venezuela, but then it was the U.S. Uh, and I remember my grandfather when I was, I don't know, probably 10 or 12 or maybe a little uh, older, 14, he would say, like, you know, we're still a U.S. colony, you know? Yeah. And I think the Bolivarian Revolution tried to bring up a new model based on our history and our roots, uh, and on the ideals of, you know, having a little more just society where uh, people are not, um, uh, you know, uh, discriminated by the color of their skin or where they come from and where we can actually have opportunities to all have a better life. Uh, there's, there was a lot of inequality in Venezuela back then and there still is. You know, mm -hmm. there's people who still have you know, a lot, and many people who still are, uh, you know, in, in, in poverty. However, I would say that uh, in these 20 years of the Bolivarian Revolution in government, uh, there's been many, many, uh, you know, advancements in terms of uh, housing, health, education, uh, and also even uh, economic uh, enterprises that have been initiated from the from the popular neighborhoods. Can you explain so, sort of the underpinning, the philosophy behind this revolution and why why it has this name? 
Well, yes, uh, of course, it's based on, on the legacy of Simón Bolívar, uh, who was the independent uh, leader from Venezuela, who led the, the revolution that uh, gave us independence from Spain. Um, but uh, what I would say that uh, the importance of Bolívar, more than just like, you know, getting independent from Spain, was his take on actually having us build a, a more fair society uh, based on equality and and kind of also uh, calling for the unity of, of all Latin America, you know, the, the Bolivarian ideal was uh, that we could not just, you know, try to achieve a better society from our little uh, countries, but that we had to unite as a region and as people. One thing that's happened in the years that, that we've, uh, we've connected and seen each other is you've claimed this, this Rastafarian identity. And, and I want to hear a little bit about, for you, like what this transformation was like and, um, and what, what was it that inspired uh, this lifestyle for you? What I would say is that uh, one of the things that is talked about uh, in, in Rust is about being non-partial and, you know, like uh, believing in, in theocracy as a way of government. Uh, although, of course, that term is still very much up for debate what you actually mean by theocracy, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. I assume it as a, you know, of course, Ja rules or God rules. Uh, and if Ja is love, then love rules. Yeah. Uh, so that's a basic principle that I try to, that I try to use in terms of how I approach my, my analysis of politics or, or any other subject uh, that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then on the other hand, um, like we also have limitations. Uh, we still need to organize much better. Uh, and I say that as, as a Rasta family, we still have a lot to do uh, in terms of organizing. And every Rasta man has a government responsibility, you know, that you have to assume it yourself, which is let the hungry be fed, the naked clothed, the sick nourished, the infants cared for the elders protected. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's that's like a mission that we're all supposed to to live up to, and and that's the idea behind our Rasta communities that there's a place where people in need can also come and you know uh, find upliftment and inspiration to you know take control of, of each of our lives and move forward together. And of course, that, and that's what I'm saying, I speak as an individual, I'm right. not speaking for any Rasta house or any organization. Um, I have, of course, uh, friends and brothers and sisters, uh, Rasta, with whom I meet here and we reason, and in many issues we agree and others we disagree. Um, but of course, I, I mean, what, one of the roots is, of course, the legacy of Ayla Selassie, uh, who we uh, see as, you know, the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, not as a lamb to be crucified and suffer, but as the conquering lion of Judah with the iron rod in his hand to bring the evil out of this earth. Mm. So, you know, it's like, this is a very personal interpretation. Of course, very based on, on what I, of course, know about the, the general ideas of Rastafari, but for me, it's like, you know, we've been 2,000 years uh, with the legacy of Jesus, 
uh, who for me is, of course, probably one of the first revolutionaries who really, you know, came to have us look beyond material, have us look beyond, you know, the um, carnal necessities or aspirations that we have, but try to really reach the human soul and, and look for that essence and the nonviolence of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, like all, all, all that legacy is of course very much valued uh, in Rasta. Um, and at the same time, when we think, okay, but Jesus said he would come again and this time not to be crucified, but to conquer, then it's like, okay, how do we assume this time now? Like, enough of, you know, being bad to each other and uh, let's try to really, you know, make make heaven on earth possible. Right. Uh, Almighty God is a living man. You know, I think that that message uh, really speaks about uh, the Rastafarian message, you know, like... Yeah. Uh, we didn't come to divide or to say you this or you that, but more trying to, you know, bring people together. And of course, it's it's also fire, you know. It's it's about burning whatever is evil in you and uh, be able to to make better people of ourselves. Right. It's not an easy process. Yes. That's my friend Marcelo performing under the name Ras Guarapo Simeon Melodia Ja. Marcelo was planning to be in the U.S. this spring on a musical tour, which obviously has now been delayed, but I'm praying that a path opens up for him to visit later in the year, and I'll keep you posted, dear listeners, as tour dates are confirmed. 
Our next stop is outside Paris, France, where I reach Jocelyn Reed, one of the leaders with the interreligious youth organization Coexiste. I first met Jocelyn about five years ago when his team was on Coexiste's inaugural interfaith tour, visiting dozens of countries in a year-long trip around the world. I have to admit I was super envious of their opportunity and wished I could have joined them. Since then, I've observed from across the pond how Jocelyn and his colleagues have been busy building one of the most impressive interfaith youth engagement programs that I've ever seen. Have a listen. Salut, oui. Jocelyn. Ça va? Hi, how are you? <laughs> things are well, things are well. How are things are with you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm pretty good. I'm in the lockdown right now, but I'm good. Tell me a little bit of, about it. I mean, I, I think I, I want to hear about how you're doing in, you know, in France right now and sort of what you're experiencing, what you're seeing with your friends and your family. Um, but then I also want to hear about um, Coexiste and, and, and how your programs are going, because I'm sure that the two things have a, have a connection, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I can start if you want with the uh, coexisting mainly how we manage right now. So basically my job uh, normally in coexisting is to organize workshops in schools mainly uh, or in front of youth and like uh, yeah young people, youngsters about uh, anti-Semitism, uh, Islamophobia, racism, living together to tackle all these issues that we are we are discussing about with with Coexiste, mm -hmm. um, like uh, the other, like uh, how to 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 live with the diversity and all this stuff. Some I I I'm basically the head of that and organizing all these workshops with volunteers in France and lots of lots of cities and all. And and when when you're talking about these workshops, what numbers are we talking about? Like how many of these are you doing in a year, and how many people? Like per year, I would say it's about two workshops per day. And the workshop is like two hours presentation uh, with, uh, like with blocks of content, uh, one about living together, one about uh, tackling prejudices, one about laicite, you know, like secularism, but in France. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're saying you're doing hundreds of these every year. Yeah, so, so yeah, yeah. For example, November and March, so we are right now in, in, in the big month normally. It's, it's more than, than two, two uh, workshops per day. And some other months, like really less than one, one workshop per day. So if you, if you make the balance at, yeah. at some point, at the end of the year, it would be around 1.82 workshops per day. That's that's incredible. That, I mean, you're and you're traveling around the the whole country, giving these workshops to different student um, groups, that sort of thing. I, I can't do that, but my, my job well, your team. is to is to train yeah. uh, the volunteers or all the coexistent we and because co like you're you're coexistent and you're living stuff in different groups around friends, like coexisting groups, like uh, dialogue events. Uh, action events uh, like blood drive, uh, um, like giving food in shelters for homeless, like acting together, not only living together, but acting together. Mm -hmm. It's really important for us. And at some point, the, the third step is to is 
to yeah sensibilize sensibilize about all the the what we've been doing in the group and the personal experiences and about the fact that it's it's really okay diversity we can live together and nah, 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 all the stuff that we are doing so my job is to train i'm so amazed by by what you all have been able to build there you know i think it's it's such an incredible youth movement and and i think the thing that's particularly impressive to me that i think maybe a lot of people in the us wouldn't assume that it would be happening in france is is that it's based on this interreligious program you know that it is an interreligious program that is about service that's about this community building that's about anti-racism work and and anti-xenophobia it is like in the us a lot of people wouldn't think that it's happening or what what well well i think that the impression here is that france is a strongly secular country and so the fact that you have this program that, that you're you're working with thousands of youth it sounds like every year really you know in a in a systematic way it's just so impressive um that you've built this in really a short time too right yeah it's like 11 years uh, yeah yeah and uh, I, i think yeah you're right because we are really uh, we have a strong secularism which is called laicite in France but we claim it as 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 a frame to all live together because laicite is not an opinion is the frame that allows all the opinions to and all the faith and all the uh, backgrounds and diversity to exist mm-hmm. so we are claiming we we are really talking about this laicite as well this uh, really specific french secularism as a frame and as a, as really a tool to use to know uh, to all live together and yeah it's true that there is a rise of uh, Islamophobia antisemitism but that's why as well there is a need for young people believers or not because we, we have lots of agnostics uh, atheists right uh, so believers of, or, or not um, to have a space a safe space to talk about it and to really try to to meet and encounter diversity so um it it, it would not it would not exist if there was no need so but we really feel that there is a need and lots of people want to be engaged and involved every year to renew the group for example and new people coming and you know this turnover so cognitive would not exist if there was no need but actually there is So I'm curious what the discourse is uh now that you all have been living with with COVID-19 uh and how that influences um either the n- nationalistic tensions or or a more openness to to uh a a global world view. If I hear what's happening Uh, at the really beginning, the first week, weeks of uh, coronavirus, and when we it, it was not yet the lockdown where we were in the metro, but it was coming. We were feeling that it was coming, you know. We faced in France, as many other European countries, uh, anti-Asian uh, behaviors at first because it was coming from China. 
So there, there, there were many stories in the metro, for example, or the, the Parisian metro that some people kicked out uh, some Asian people because it was becoming a bit like <laughs> intense and and even Asians like you even don't don't know if they are Chinese and if even if they are Chinese I mean but but the first of all they, they could be like Filipinos or, or Japanese or first of all and secondly even if they were Chinese it was totally bullshit so I would say yeah it's really mainly uh, people are tense and they are a bit afraid of uh, of of alterity and diversity and a bit more in such context but in the same part i feel that since two weeks there there is a big uh, big movement of solidarity as well of lots of people um, uh, cheering up the hospital at 8 p.m every night uh, on the windows and all and trying to find a way to help neighbors or old people in the same building so um, I would say, yeah, we face racism, and I, I think it's it's really tricky because when uh, like you feel like something is coming from outside, so you have to protect. But at some point, this kind of context can lead to more of more solidarity as well, and more um, yeah, uh, a different way to connect with others and to interact. In your family or your immediate circle of friends, have have you all been affected by by Corona? Uh, I have myself. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, yeah, yeah. I I mean, we're not sure because I'm young and it was not okay. uh, intense, so I was not tested. But I had all these symptoms for really five days. It was really, really like I was really KO for for five days, and I recovered and all. But uh, but in my family, no, we are all safe. We I am with my parents right now. Uh, we I, I call, for example, my grandma, which is uh, she's like uh, eighty-seven years old. So, um, but you you see, for example, this kind of context. Uh, last Saturday, we we had an idea with my dad. Uh, and we never did it before. It, it was to um, to make a Skype event with all the family, with the aunts, the the, right. the uncles, the cousins, to like let's say have a drink together for half an hour and try to just cheering up. But that's because even if we if we if the context uh, did not exist, we won't do that. For example, and we only see each other for two times a year. So this kind of context, as I told you before, leads to rethink human uh, sometimes links and how you deal with the others, relatives, for example, the people that you really care, and and the way of really meaning your words on on talking or trying to take time to call them, to video call them. So so I think more widely it will. I hope it will it will lead to. We have to. To rethink uh, how we deal with each other and and how uh, human relationships can be uh, more true sometimes. That's something that many people are experiencing right now in whatever contexts that they they are are really in a situation to rethink many things. You know their their priorities, their family life, their um, 
what they spend their time doing, how they spend yeah. their time with their job, all of this thing. Um, yeah, that's it. Are, with Coexiste, have you been talking as a team about how it's going to affect uh, the work that you're doing going forward? Yeah, of course, of course. We, we, we talked about that, uh, about that with the team. And, uh, and the, the, the main idea with Coexiste is, of course, like you cannot create a physical event right now um, but we cannot stop what we do or we cannot stop what coexisting uh, brings to the world or I would say to France so the idea is uh, since one week ten days already uh, is to is to first of all create we created a um, solidarity hashtag on social media to to post and report uh, positive content and helping content, not only interface but being being present and active to report uh, positive things. Um, we created lots of uh, non-physical events, even to and to, to stay connected with their different groups and 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 young people in the group. And we try to, yeah, we try to, to continue in the different way. We try to think about how to to make a workshops online, for example, if schools can reopen at some point. And at some point, it will maybe lead to another tool that we didn't explore yet. You know, online sensitization or online workshop. So yeah, of course, we are talking every day of of this context. And of course, my my workshops all was cancelled, and I uh, had to to deal with it for for a week. But it doesn't mean that you stop working; you just try to find new ways of doing things. What are you doing to keep yourself, you know, spiritually strong? And you know, obviously, you have this great team that you're working with. But in your own life and practice, are there are there things that you're doing? to keep yourself centered and grounded during this uh, difficult and uncertain time? Um, so really in terms of uh, my personal life, I, I, I have a girlfriend uh, which lives in, uh, in Brussels. Oh wow. Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of long distance relationship, even if it's really close uh, in Europe. But mm -hmm. I mean, I live in Paris, she lives in Brussels. Yeah. So still four hours, uh, train or buses and in this context I, I actually I was supposed to go there uh, but I, I I was sick the day so I can't stop the train and after the lockdown so now it's a bit tricky because we are a bit used to being uh, in this kind of distance and trying to see the next point the next uh, weekend that we will see each other but now it's a bit blurry because we don't know when exactly we will see each other so, for example, yeah, lots of calls, of course. Uh, when I was telling you about the fact that you really mean the word that you say and you, you try to express, it's really um, that you really care about what you want to express and you share and taking time. For example, it's not 10 minutes calls, but it can be one hour, one hour and a half, which is not really usual normally. And, for example, we both are... Um, we both we like to do sports. We, I don't know if we are sportive or also. And yesterday, yeah, we did like we we really try to connect 
with each other, trying to begin with a yoga session and then trying to a bit exercise together with the strong connection, Skype connection, which is not the same than being in the same room, but at some point um, I, I could I could do my sport on my own and she could do the same. But we really tried to see, okay, at 5 p.m. we will call and we will see each other and trying to, to motivate, to empower each other. So it's part of the of the of the connection that you try to maintain with your beloved ones and, and relatives. Um, and yeah, mentally, for example, uh, it, it, I have more time to read and to actually read, like read the article or books. I try to write a bit as well. Um, so at the beginning it was weird because we have really active lives and we have really full days. So when you are not used to this kind of time and different of schedule, you you're a bit lost. But at some point you try to reconnect with yourself, with uh, what matters really. So what matters is like uh, trying to to still read good stuff, trying to connect with your beloved ones, trying to take time to yourself to eat well, to do sport, to to do meditation, to do yoga, so really basic stuff, you know. Mm. I'm learning as many people in this kind of uh, process as well and to really take time to yourself and to your beloved one. I, I can't remember, are you part of a particular uh, faith community that has organized activities? No, my family, I, I, I myself, I'm agnostic mm -hmm. uh, and my family as well, so um, so yeah, there is no really religion in our background, uh, in our daily life. I have many religions in my daily life with my work and with my friends and, and lots of sharing with my with all my friends. But me, myself, I'm not a religious person. I'm a, I'm a faith person or a spiritual person, but I'm not into a, a community, particular community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I, I ask because, you know, a, a big part of the conversation here in the interfaith communities is um, uh, exploring how and learning from different faith communities how they're moving their activities online, right? Because they're a yeah, big, yeah. it's a big... Lots uh, of uh, mass, for example, uh, priest uh, preaching online, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 so yeah, it's yeah. Same, sim similar thing. And obviously we're moving into holidays right now where where, um, you know, it would be a big time for families to come together or there would be big religious yeah. services and so Easter, a lot of that. Easter, Easter celebration is coming as well and and even Ramadan will start not now but in few weeks so if it stays like that, how you connect with your friends and also, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for for, for joining. I really appreciate yeah, uh, you taking you. the time. Yeah, thank you. It was really, really cool to to see you again. Yeah. <laughs> Even not real, but I mean, it's really cool. Yeah, and uh, and I hope that uh, we'll be together at some point, either in, in Paris or, or in D.C. if you come through here. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. If you come back to after this uh, whole big situation, if you come back to Paris, we definitely see each other. Great, great. I love it. Okay. Well, I hope you have a great day. Stay safe and healthy. Yeah, you too. Stay safe. And... That's Jocelyn Reed of the French organization Coexiste. I love Jocelyn's spirit and the way his unflappable team is adapting to take their movement online 
so they can continue educating the next generation of interfaith leaders even during this period of social isolation. To learn more about Coexist Day, visit coexistday.fr. That's C-O-E-X-I-S-T-E-R dot F-R. All right, dear listeners, our international interfaith-ish expedition carries us next to Cairo, Egypt, where I connected with my friend Dahlia Yunus. As a communications officer with UNICEF, a mother, and a gifted singer who is using her talents to bridge Christian and Muslim communities, Dahlia is experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic on multiple fronts. I reached Dahlia late one evening last week, at home after a long day juggling her busy work and family schedule. Hi, Dahlia. How are you? All good? Good, good. good. Can you hear me? Uh, I can. I can hear you. Your video is also on. Oh, in the, oh. oh, Yeah, sure. Do you want me to call you back? No, no, no it's okay. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to catch you unawares. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I'll just. I'll. I'll just. I'll just uh, assume that's an indication that I'm family at this point. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Big time. So how are, how are you doing this evening? Um, I'm fine. Actually, I've, I've been swamped with work because, you know, um, at UNICEF, we're so into the COVID-19 all the time. So it's not just social media and family and friends talking about it, but it's also work. So oh I, I just see COVID-19 more than anybody could, like, tolerate it. Uh, yeah. So it has been really hectic because we're you're planning for a social media campaign for uh, uh, Egyptian parents because you know we, we have a curfew. I yeah. don't know if you know the news, but it's since yesterday yeah. it was announced that we uh, have an official curfew from 7 p.m. till 6 a.m. next morning every day. Oh wow! And on the weekend, which is Friday and Saturday here, there is a 24-hour curfew. You cannot go out at mm. all. Mm. So. It's getting really serious here. Yeah. Uh, still, the death and uh, uh, and infection toll is not really high if you compare it to other places in Europe. Um, some people claim that this is because basically we do not test people as much as we should. Mm. And others claim that, well, uh, Egyptians have relatively a good immunity because, you know, we, we, we face much worse stuff than this. So uh, th- that's why the numbers are not really big. So tell me a little bit about what it's been like for you, for your family. Um, you've got a young son at home and, and, and you've been juggling your job and obviously a job that's right in the thick of it. So what's, what it's, what's it been like for you every day? Um, well, I, I try as much as I can to, uh, to move between two safe places, which is my own apartment and my family's. Because uh, basically, at some point, I cannot have any meetings or any peaceful working hours if he's around. Because mm. uh, you know, he, he doesn't just have autism, but he also has uh, ADHD. Oh. So it's really challenging to keep yeah. him in one place for long, long, long time, like uh, all day. Uh, so I'm very thankful to have an Annie who's very cooperative. Uh, she she manages to keep him as much quiet and engaged as possible mm-hmm. uh, when he's around, when I'm working. Uh, and she also helps me a lot with the commute. She, she commutes him to my parents' house 
and back, so I don't have to drive him, to drive him there and, and, and here. Uh, so I, I consider myself as a very lucky mother. Uh, mm. Other mothers do not have this luxury, have the, um, the pressure of delivering their own uh, work requirements as well as uh, uh, doing house chores and uh, making sure their children are uh, following up with their studies and everything. Some schools are already sending material. My, my son's own school are, are doing that. They send online uh, distance learning packs, mm -hmm. uh, and um, they're just trying to, to, to give parents some stuff that they can get the kids engaged with. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it's really heavy. I mean, I was, uh, last week I posted a video on my own page giving some tips to parents on how to deal with the negative emotions and the pressure we're having as parents in Egypt uh, with all these dynamics that are out of our hands and are affecting us more or less. Uh, and and um, I, I acknowledge that this is something that we never expected to happen uh, anytime soon in Egypt in, in that way. Mm -hmm. And that we, we should uh, we should be able to, you know, like stop and smell the roses and see how we can um, learn lessons out of this. Yeah. The whole planet is taking time off yet. We're all saying how nature is so happy that we're at home at last. So, uh, mm. yeah, I think everybody should take that moment off. Are there um, other aspects of the way you're conducting your relationships or organize your own daily routine that you're rethinking now? Definitely, yes. I mean, Spending so much time with people that you don't usually spend that time with uh, is an eye-opener. Um, I mean, sometimes I, I think that it is uh, a bliss that we do not spend 24-7 with the people we love because this will cause us to love them less. <laughs> uh, there is that Lebanese-American uh, writer who, Gubran Khalid Gubran, who yes. had that uh, very wise quote uh, from his book, uh, The Prophet, uh, that uh, you don't know how much you have, how how much you love that person until you leave him or her. Mm -hmm. So having spaces between uh, between the loved ones every now and then, even like the nine to five space, the, the usual uh, work routine allows us just to appreciate the people we have. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, like having to spend a lot of time that is very um, uh, hard and there is full of anxiety and pressure and, and rumors and like dark comedy and everything has also its, its aspect, it, it, it shows you another side of that person that you might have never seen before just because you haven't spent that much time with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I saw this uh, this thing with my mother because uh, I'm, I'm a very, very busy woman and I, I partially live in another place now. So uh, when I say, when I have to stay sometime with her when, when everything that I just got crazy, 
I, I suddenly realized that all the strength genes, the strong independent woman genes I got are from birds. That was the 50% of her genome that, that I got. She, she's super, super strong when it comes to calamities and, mm. and like uh, disaster management. Like mm. when my son just trashes everything and when when we uh, hear about the curfew. Okay, so you go buy this from here. Call your sister. Let her bring bread. So just, she's like that marshal who knows everything and how, how everything should, should go like. Um, so this is something that I, I really started to appreciate. My mother, she's over 60 now, yet she... She's very strong when it comes to things that make me makes me want to cry at some mm, point. I just mm -hmm. want to collapse and cry. I cannot really handle all the news, all the school trouble, all the the boys trouble, and all the nannies issues, and I, I just can't at some mm. point. But you see her as she was actually uh, going live moments ago, giving some support and really and really, she, she she likes to to give up. Uh, uh, some preaching in most and almost her shutdown with churches and everything. You mean so you mean on on like on Facebook or something? Oh, okay. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. She went live on Facebook and she gave some, you know, like supportive message to her followers, and she got like one thousand comments. Oh, thank you very much. We've needed this. We've needed wow, your your mom's a, your mom's an influencer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. I never realized that. I, I just never realized that she, she got like nine k views in in a couple of minutes. Oh my goodness. Uh, so yeah, wow. I'm so I'm very proud. And actually, I, I am doing something myself that I started that initiative. Uh, that starting the curfew hours, I post a video that I sing a song that people request mm. on my website. So it's like mm. old radio show styles. So you guys send us what you want, and we play this song for you. But I, I sing it, and I uh, I'm encouraging other musicians to play their music, send me the video, and I sing along with it. So you know we get uh, sing along feeling somehow. Yeah. Uh, so I'm actually gonna I'm gonna send you the video. It, it was a, a very nice song that we started with called Henwa Baladi or My Country Is Beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, so and and it was actually played on violin by a high school student mm. so so to me also it's uh, it means much that i'm trying to support students to do something that is a bit unorthodox because yeah. uh, everybody's like you should study you should just focus on your future but like having some time to play music to do something that if you can relieve is something important to teens not mm -hmm. just uh, little ch children or, or adults, but yeah. for teens. I mean, I, I'm very concerned about teens as well. Because, you know, at this phase, you, you're just super concerned about your privacy, your own time, and suddenly you find yourself logged at home with your parents that you're probably not really uh, not on very good terms with. So I feel the pressure on teens as well. I understand that you, you had a, a concert that you had scheduled, you said, in Beirut. And, yes. and you've had to postpone that. It was that. not in Beirut. It was in Saida, which is the... Uh -huh. Saida is in the, in the, in the south. And it was not, not just a concert, actually. It was 
uh, a learning program as well. I was going to get trained by one of the best choirs in the Arab world, it's called the Mehab Choir. They sing the type of singing that I love, which is a cappella singing. Uh, so they're the best in, in the whole region. And they offered me 10 days of intensive workshops, wow. uh, attending rehearsals with them. And even the maestro, who I personally know, promised me to have some private sessions to my own troupe. Uh, and so, so it was a very, very big opportunity. And mm. you cannot imagine how unlucky I feel that mm. everything just got canceled. Yeah. Um, I hope it's not really canceled as much as it's like postponed. I just like to right. sugarcoat right. it like this. Um, but it was uh, something that I was looking forward to. And, uh, you know, like everything, it just, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope that there will be another opportunity. Um, you know, as I've, as I've said before, you're, your singing is such a gift, and I, I love the spirit in which you sing. You've done a lot with bringing Christians and Muslims together in song. Um, what have been some of the recent efforts that you've been doing in that regard? Um, well, one of the, the funny thing is one of the canceled stuff that happened was uh, a guest performance that I was going to make here in Cairo in a concert called uh, A Night's with the Immacul was Immaculate Mary. Okay. Uh, so there was that orchestra called the the uh, uh, the Virgin Mary Orchestra here. It's a uh, the first harmonic, classic, Christian Orthodox orchestra in the country. Uh, and uh, there that I uh, I love to sing for Virgin Mary, and they invited me to their concert, which was one of the biggest theaters here in Cairo. It's, mm. it's one of the opera theaters, because mm. uh, the opera has like many, like Lincoln Center, it has mm -hmm. many theaters there. Mm -hmm. So it was one of them, and uh, it was something very big to me to, to sing there for the first time. And it was of course canceled, because uh, the Ministry of Culture, just uh, two days before the concert, they decided everything is canceled, as uh, a precautions. And, uh, so, um, this was a very interesting experience because I used to go to a church to do the rehearsals and I, I used to interact with uh, the orchestra members, which, uh, by the way, is composed of children as young as seven years old. Mm. Uh, and, and, and it was amazing to me to see young children playing the violin, playing the flute, and, and being very, very good at it. Imagine how good they are, although they're very young. So, uh, and, and some of them just looked at me. Oh, so you wear a veil and you sing to our version there? Wow, that's interesting. So I, I made some some good friends with, uh, with 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 those young ones. So um, again, it's it's something that, uh, as you said, it, getting people connected with music is something that I keep doing one way or another, even. If I cannot reach out to people physically, but uh, I, I still have that in mind, and I still invite people, whoever uh, uh, they are or wherever they are nowadays, uh, to, to contribute. Uh, many Christian friends are actually uh, 
interested in collaborating not just in Christian music as expected, but in all kinds. I got uh, messages from uh, people I, I, I met in the cathedral where I made my Arabic Christmas concert. They said that they wanted to collaborate in, ma in making some religious music as well remotely. Mm. Uh, I got uh, messages from people who... Actually, I got a very interesting message from a Christian friend of mine who plays with an Islamic band. Mm. So he was just on phone with me. Okay, so I'm gonna finish that song, which is a very Islamic song, and get back to you. So I, I just like, oh wow, I have a lot of interesting people in my network. A Christian <laughs> player playing in an Islamic. Oh God, I'm, I'm I'm very lucky with the people I know. <laughs> um, so I I hope that that would uh, materialize. And actually, I still have the dream of doing the Christmas concert in the U.S. Uh, that I, I, I couldn't you know, like, uh, achieve last December. So hopefully if things resolve by summer, I can start uh, planning for that as well. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, I think after the virus is gone, we need to, you know, start a new phase. Perhaps that will be a very good opportunity to start a new phase with the Islamic Christian multi-faith uh communities in, in the u.s yeah that'll be beautiful we're waiting for you to come i hope so well dahlia thank you so much this is so great i love connecting with you and i love hearing your your singing it it always brings me so much joy so i hope you keep singing through all the challenges that you have it's always a pleasure to to, to connect to you jack and hopefully we can physically see each other uh anytime soon inshallah inshallah كلمة حلوة وكلمتين حلوة يا بلدي غنوة حلوة وغنوتين حلوة يا بلدي أملي دايما كان يا بلدي إني أرجع لك يا بلدي وأفضل دايما جنبك على طول That's Dahlia Yunus performing My Country is Beautiful with her new remote performance project creating music with talented instrumentalists in isolation. You can find her on Facebook and YouTube under The Dahlia Yunus, T-H-E-D-A-L-I-A-Y-O-U-N-I-S. You can also find her famous mom on Facebook at Dr. Susan El Shafi. That's S-U-Z-A-N-E-L-S-H-A-F-3-Y. Seriously, Dahlia's mom's got like 55,000 followers. I wish I could speak Arabic so I could enjoy all of her wisdom. Anyway, on to our last call. Nana Sarwa is a young pastor in Ghana, where COVID-19 is just beginning to emerge as a full-blown health emergency. In Ghana, one can't avoid seeing the influential presence of religion, particularly Christianity, and the many evangelical churches. There are huge billboards promoting rock star pastors on every busy street, 
and advertisements announcing megachurch prayer campaigns all day on the radio. So I was curious to hear from Nana what the pandemic response has been from these faith leaders and how they are using their powerful social positions to address the challenge. Hello. Hello, Nana, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay, doing okay. Is this still a good time for you? Yes, please, that's a good time. So it's a Sunday. Don't you have a, a flock to be shepherding today? Yeah, but you know the plant issued uh, a ban on congregation size that's more than 25. <laughs> so we are having virtual services now. Oh, I see. So you can let your hair down a little bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is your schedule on uh, on a typical Sunday? Um, so service starts at 7 in the morning mm. and I have to usually be in church at least 30 minutes before service starts and um, we have so we usually run um, two main services on a Sunday so the last service ends, the second service ends at 12 noon and after that, there's usually one or two things to do around church to get ready for the week. Mm. So, yeah, I should give and take. I should be leaving church around 2 p.m. Okay. Yeah, so then I get home. I usually would just rest and get ready for the week. Yeah. Is, is your church in your home neighborhood or is it uh, far from where you live? No, it's it's actually far from where I live. It takes me about an hour on a Sunday without traffic. Wow. Yeah. And so how did you become affiliated then with the church? Is that your family's um, community or is it a relatively new relationship? Um, okay, so it's a branch of the church I grew up in that I am at now. Okay. But it's a church I grew up in. I have always attended that church. I have never attended any other church before. This is the only church I know. And what denomination is it? It's a charismatic uh -huh. church, so it's the International Central Gospel Church. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so I grew up in that church, but then as the church grew, different branches were established. And so once I I finished Bible school, then the head office, like it's a procedure, when you finish Bible school, the head office will now attach you to one of the branches mm. that you can serve for a while, learn, and then eventually if you get to the point where you would want to start another branch, they help you start it as well. So I was um, attached to the branch in Tema once I finished Bible school and my rotations and all of that. Mm -hmm. That's why I am there now. But wow. my family also go to, for now my family attends another branch of the same church because my mother is the head pastor of the branch as well. Oh, so it's a, a family legacy. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so my family goes to my mother's branch and then I go to the summer branch alone. Wow, because you're in a leadership role at that one. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, because for me it's more like a work ministry. Right. So I, I have to go there. But for everyone else, they get to sleep in a little bit later on Sunday, I guess. Because they go to one closer? No, I mean, <laughs> it, 
day of service starts at eight, and my mom would give you pressure to be out of the house. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so we end up all waking up around the same time. I see. But they don't have the same commute. Do they? Do they also have to go a long distance, or are they no, right it's there? No, it's not long. It's not long distance. This is about twenty minutes or so. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that that's yes, it's very short. <laughs> uh huh. But mom still makes everybody get up and help put yeah. the books out and open the yeah. doors and. <laughs> yeah. Because she can't afford lateness. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a a proper Ghanaian mom. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how how the last couple of weeks have been going for for you all, and and how you know COVID nineteen's been, you know how you what you've been hearing about it in your community. I think most of us are in a bit of a shock hmm. because. I think for a long time we didn't have any reported case in Ghana and so some of us were hoping it would stay that way and I think a lot of people were also thinking that this is very far from us, right? And then you wake up one day and you are told there are two confirmed cases and in your mind you're like, oh, two, I think we can, you know, we can keep this under control. And this morning I wake up and we are at... 152 if mm -hmm. I am correct mm -hmm. and so I think everything has happened a bit like quickly for, for a lot of us it's like you wake up one day as to the next minute you are in the hundreds for me I feel like maybe we are going to have a very um, terrible awakening you know yeah. it's going to hit us very hard and then people would realize that okay this is really serious right what about in your in your um, church? What what have been the what's been the response from the leadership in the church, and and how has your community um, been yeah. affected? I think immediately we heard about I mean coronavirus and how serious it was getting. In churches, we started you know telling people. I mean, almost every Sunday there'll be an advert that plays about the. Um, safety measures and all that telling people you have to do this we had like sanitizers all over the place this is starting um, when how 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 many weeks back this this was probably maybe like almost a month ago mm -hmm. i think people started i mean we realized that this is getting serious so the church you know and then we, in as much as we could we really um asked people to avoid physical contact. For example, in my church like this, every Sunday before the pastor preaches, he would ask us to go around and shake a friend, say something to someone, but we stopped that mm. because we're trying to avoid physical contact. The arrangements in church changed a bit because the seats were now spaced out a little further than the usual Sunday. Mm -hmm. So we were trying as much as possible to, you know, let people know that this is what's happening. And in as much as you can pray, and I think our general overseer said that, that you can pray to God and do all of that. But if you don't practice the precautionary measures, you would still get the virus. You know, there's there's a place for common sense and faith. And I think most of the time, some Christians uh, find it difficult to accept that. They think once, the, once it has to do with faith or spirituality, then common sense should be left out. Mm. And I think now that's now is a time when 
a lot of pastors are trying to get their members to understand that there's a place for common sense in, I mean, in faith or in spirituality. A couple of pastors in the beginning, I think, defied the orders when the ban was placed on gatherings beyond 25 people. Mm -hmm. some, some pastors went ahead to have service. I think a pastor in Kumasi was arrested for that because they, as I said, they think faith somehow overrides common sense. So I think for now, a lot of pastors are trying to teach their members that, that you know what, there's a place for common sense in faith or in spirituality. So do what the medical TM people have asked you to do and you'll be fine. So hmm. that is what we were doing until the president gave, put the ban on the 25 and above people. Then we stopped having church service and then we started with our virtual service so you have just about five people put together a service and then it's broadcast live for i mean the members to watch so that's what has been happening now yeah and i want to believe that all the churches and mocks are doing the same thing because the president had given a directive that this is what should happen yeah. So that's what we're doing. But I, now that I, there's a lockdown, mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of fear and panic amongst a lot of people. So I think this is a time where most pastors would have to up their game when it comes to congregational care. And it's difficult because now you have to do that virtually. You don't get to go to a person's house and comfort the person because these are very difficult times. And yes. you have people who live hand to mouth every day. And now they have to stay indoors for two weeks. Mm -hmm. They have to now think about how they are going to even have money to buy the essentials they need. So yesterday I saw a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, and a lot of other um, organizations or groups coming together, going around and distributing food and other things for people who would really need it. Mm -hmm. I have seen people put up, um, if I may use the word adverts on social media saying that if you really genuinely need help, let us know. We will try and come to you. I have seen people come together contributing money so they can help strangers just get through this period. So uh, even though a lot is happening, it's also nice to see people coming together to help each other, even though we are doing that very far apart. So, yeah. yeah. Right. I think the first time we had the virtual service was last week Sunday, and it was hard for me. I woke up on a Sunday and I just didn't know what to do with myself because mm. Sundays are for church. That is what you know. And so, I mean, I was just after I watched the virtual service and it ended, there was really nothing else to do. Mm. And the virtual services are short because people have to use data and internet here is very expensive. So you don't want to have a very long virtual service where right. people right. have to spend a lot of money on data. So it's the service is very short than the usual service you would have. Yeah. I wonder if, if you observe, you know, particularly out there a little bit outside of the city, if is, is it a little bit easier for people who have these family compounds and everything where they have, uh, you know, a, maybe the cousins and the aunts and uncles and so forth that are living in the same area? People do. A lot of people do. A lot of people, too, are not too far apart. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's easier to just go and see family and all that. Some people have also had and moved from regions to Accra because Accra, sure. Greater Accra is the capital right. of, of Ghana. So there's a lot happening. It's like the most commercial place, if I may put it. 
And so a lot of people have had to move here also for work, leaving their extended family at different parts of the country. And so I, I, I have heard that a few people have been traveling, especially since um, they heard that there's, there's going to be a lockdown, a, a lot of people. My grandmother lives in another part of uh, Ghana. She lives in Kaswa, which is in the central region, but very close to the greater Accra region. Mm-hmm. So she lives there. So I think on Wednesday, we had to go and see her and give her a few items just in case there's going to be a lockdown and... Now the lockdown is here. Yesterday I called her to check up on her. She's fine. So a lot of people have that issue. But most people, especially within central Accra, most people still live in family houses. So the extended family is still there. Mm-hmm. That's so, for most people in central Accra that I can speak to. And I know that for uh, the other regions too, there are lots of them that still have that family house situation. Yeah. So. Are you going to move your grandmother back with you, or is not that has that not been part of the conversation? We we spoke about that, but she thinks she's fine. Yeah, she, is, <laughs> she has all she needs, and she's not going anywhere, so she thinks she's fine. And she lives with, um, um, if I may say, a caretaker, someone who takes care of her and helps oh, her around good. the house with gardening and you know all of that so mm. she says they will be fine mm. Mm. so <laughs> i hope she yeah, is yeah, I, really yeah I, I really hope so she, she's a retired nurse so she's a bit well informed and she's, oh yes um, okay she's taking very good care of herself so, yeah yeah I, I, I just know she'll be fine I, I wonder, to your point earlier about how, you know, this is some, you, you all are still in, in relatively early days. I wonder how it's, um, it's going to look, you know, in another month's time, particularly... I think that's everyone's fear for now. Yeah, particularly thinking about the, you know, the, 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 the health services that, that are available, you know, as someone who... Um, has been in 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 Ghana to some of these you know rural hospitals yeah. um, in in a number of the different regions you know and just seeing how maxed out they can be on even uh, you know a regular basis um, given yeah. the limited resources that they have I, I I wonder what that what that will look like if there is you know a a, a more serious spread of this um, in the weeks ahead yeah, that's that's the fear. So I think in the beginning they were trying to get people to not move out of Accra mm. because you know most people that because for us the I mean a lot of the cases that we have are imported cases and they all would get to Accra before they move to their various right. regions or wherever they're coming from. So for a long time I think they were asking that they, they contained them in Accra and they've been doing that since I think the is it last week or this week where immediately you come in, you're quarantined for 14 days, you're tested and all of that. So I think for those who have just come in within the last week or so, yes, we are able to contain, I mean, contain it. But those who have already been in the system, where when we don't know who they've come into contact with, that's the fear because now the disease has gone beyond Accra. Mm-hmm. Kumasi has reported cases as well. This morning there were 10 cases in Tamale, which were also imported cases because mm. they had come from Burkina Faso, through Togo and all of that into the country. Mm-hmm. And that's the fear right now because most of these regions, as you rightly said, don't have 
very strong medical facilities. Yeah. Most of them, when there are emergency cases, have to be flown to either Kumasi or Accra mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. medical, I mean, attention. And now that's the fear because we don't have that capacity if this hits like a very large number of people. Right. How many oxygen masks do we even have right. in hospitals? Right. And so that's the fear. And so on Wednesday, our president declared it as a national day of fasting and prayer where everybody fasted and prayed. Mm. Christians did theirs, Muslims did theirs, other religions also did in ways they know how to do. Because we're just praying. I think at this point, that is all we can do, pray and hope that this number is contained because in as much as we want to believe people would adhere to all these precautionary measures, not everybody will. And that's the truth. It's a, it's a hard truth, but that is it. People, and as I said earlier, people are still not taking this seriously, like social distancing and all. They don't even, I mean, they can't be bothered. Mm. So that's, that's the only fear right now. And hoping that, especially the very or populated areas in Accra don't get hit because there are places where people like it's like you're in each other's face because of how the area set up is even the, the housing you have there you have people more than 10 or 20 living in a very small compound so imagine if one person there is exposed to right. this disease and in these areas most of them share public bathroom bath house Yes. So imagine if someone in a neighborhood like that gets the virus, everybody within that compound gets it. When they go and use the public toilets, everybody that is going there is at a risk mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of that. So that's been the fear for now that these very populated areas where compound is shared, bathroom is shared and all that, that we, we just hope we don't get any cases there for now. Yeah. Nana, I wonder if if you have any insight, you know, as a as a as a pastor, as a God-fearing woman, <laughs> if you, what what are some of the uh, what are, what have some of been your, your you know the spiritual reflections on this time and and what you and your friends have been or the leadership of the church have been promoting? For us as Christians, I think, or for me as a pastor and in conversations with my other pastors, pastor friends, I think what we get from this is that at the end of it, we are going to have a lot of people turning to God, which is a good thing hmm. for us. Because mm -hmm. that is all what we are preaching about, that people turn to Christ, turn to God and come and know Him. So if even in the midst of something as deadly as this, people can turn to God, then our work somehow is done. Mm. So for now, yes, that's, that's what most of the conversations are about. And now seeing how people are relying on the church for help, when these were the same people that used to condemn the church all the time, mm. but have now turned around and say that, you know, the church has to help. You need to donate this. You need to do that. And I'm seeing churches, no matter the denomination, coming together and helping people, right? Going to homes, giving money, giving food. And that, in a way, is a form of evangelism. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, even though but now that we are doing it, we are not thinking about that. My church went to donate things for the Tamajana Hospital. We gave them sanitizers. You know, we, 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 we provided for them. 
And we are not doing this because we are saying, come and follow us. But I'm sure at the end of it, someone will sit back and say, wow, I, I really admire how the church came together to help in times like this. So I would want to turn to God or turn to Christ because I know that the church will be there for me. If that brings someone to God, then praise the Lord. But that is what we have seen, that a lot of people are turning to God now. A lot of people are praying. People who were even in the church and were a bit lukewarm, you see them now on fire for God and praying and, you know, doing all of that. So it's nice to see that, that even in the midst of all of this, people are still holding on carefully to God. People who had turned their backs on the church are now coming to church. Hmm. So, yeah, that's what's happening. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your reflections. I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, and and I hope that you and your your family stay safe and healthy, and that your community is able to continue to do good works uh, for the rest of your your community and your country. Amen. Thank you for for talking to me too, and I really pray that you you stay safe and your family as well. Right everything when all of this is over we'll still be here to be able to have a conversation again yes god willing that was pastor nana serwa who you can follow on instagram at n-a-n-a-s-e-r-w-a-a underscore or on her blog reflected thoughts blog dot wordpress Dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed our trip around the globe, an intrepid attempt to administer our antidote against isolation. Thanks to my friends Marcelo, Jocelyn, Dahlia, and Nana for taking the time to speak with me. These conversations definitely lifted my spirits and helped me see the many ways this pandemic is impacting lives around the world. We are all in this together, dear listeners, and I hope whether near or far, you are reaching out to your loved ones to check in on how they are doing as well. And if you have a story of your own interfaith-ish during this pandemic, we want to hear about it. You can find us on social media at interfaith-ish. You can leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And you can write us about the interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.